You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the Double Edge Double Bill. Tonight, the Irishman finds serenity in 2019. Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One has two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin, baby. And I am Adam Thomas, and am I in a video game? And I'm Thomas Mariani, and I have certain rules I need to show you, Adam. Oh, <laughs> this fish finder that. and everything. <laughs> oh. We have our fun. Uh, spoiling the movie already before we even get into it. The Irishman, obviously. That's how the Irishman ends. That's why they all look video gamey when they're younger. Uh, but, Adam, we're not alone here in our discussion. Uh, we have a guest. Uh, she is a film writer, and uh, she is a general fan of especially Irishmen-related memes and such. It is Miss Brianna Ziegler. Brianna, how are you doing? Hi, I'm great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm a big fan of yours on Twitter. I love all your writing and stuff. And uh, you're a big film person, obviously. And uh, our, our discussion for tonight, because uh, we're near the end of the year, is just uh, 2019 overall for film. And uh, given you're a film writer yourself, Brianna, uh, how did you feel about the year? I loved it. I had a great time. I tweeted like a few days ago something about how like I feel like I've seen so many tweets from like people I follow that this was a bad year for movies or something. If you look at my list of like 2019 ranks, the scale is definitely imbalanced towards bad movies, but I feel like the movies that I liked were just so good. It just cancels out the movies I didn't like by like so much. So I don't know. I I thought it was a fantastic year. Yeah, I felt generally the same. I think it's if you ask like the general populace, they would probably say that because I'll say it was a terrible like summer for movies. Oh, it's like it was so many like shitty blockbusters throughout yeah. the entire summer. It's like one would probably say like, oh, like the Avengers Endgame I liked. And like that's it <laughs> in terms of like the bigger mainstream successful films. Uh, and I'm guessing, Adam, you're would you say you lean more toward that direction? Uh, given I know you have a smaller view on terms Come of on, recent. Dad. So you know, I didn't watch shit this year. <laughs> <laughs> I saw I saw what I had to watch for this show, and I ain't seen shit. But what I did see in the theater, there was only one that I saw that I, I was like, no, I don't like this. But, but other than that, I, everything I saw, I liked. Like What was Pet the Cemetery? one from this year? Pet Cemetery. Pet Cemetery. Okay. The remake. <laughs> get, the, yeah. get the fuck out of here with this. Everything else I saw in the theater, I, I actually thoroughly enjoyed. And, uh, so, yeah, it was... Pretty decent year for movies. I do agree with Brianna that if nothing else, um, there were a, a lot more, especially I think at the during the spring and during the fall, there was a just influx of great movies. I think at least it was a it was a good sandwich bread of a year. And uh, I mean, we're going to talk about two uh, films today because if you're new to the show, every week Adam and I um, pick uh, two movies that we discuss uh, for the next week. And so last week we picked 
um, technically, uh, two films. Uh, first, we have our bad pick, which is Serenity, which came out in January. Uh, Matthew McConaughey vehicle that everyone only probably knows because people spoil the twist online. Because you're mm. like, wait, what the fuck? <laughs> they really did this. Um, and then our good pick was something of uh, Adam's Choice, which was The Irishman. But that was voted on by all of our listeners out there on our Facebook and Twitter feeds uh you all ended up voting between adam's two choices of shazam and the irishman we got the irishman like we're definitely going as divergent as possible <laughs> with our two picks tonight <laughs> so for for that we should also mention because these are new films out there uh, we're going to put up a spoiler warning because usually we cover older films but definitely considering we are uh, covering two films from just this year just a warning uh, to go see at least one of these let's go ahead and get into serenity You know how in Plymouth I like to say everybody knows everything. It wouldn't be funny if the truth was that nobody knows anything. I will give you ten million dollars to drown my husband in the ocean for the sharks. Some weird stuff going on right now. This old island's a part of it, but nobody knows it. So uh, Serenity came out uh, January 25th, 2019, uh, was written and directed by Stephen Knight, but it stars Matthew McConaughey and Anne Hathaway, Jason Clark of The Pet Cemetery, make your favorite movie of this year, Adam, um, and Diane Lane, Jamon Hanzu, and um, Brianna, you hadn't seen this before we uh, tasked you to, no. and we apologize, <laughs> um, and given your arousing sentiments just there verbally, uh, how do you feel about uh, Serenity? First off, I want to criticize you for leaving Jeremy Strong out of your little cast. As soon as he came on screen, I like literally yelled out loud, like alone to myself. I had no idea he was going to be in this, and he did not save this movie for me. I would argue he's at least the funniest part of this movie, because... Uh... <laughs> he's he's playing this character who keeps coming up as like because Matthew McConaughey the basic story is that Matthew McConaughey plays this guy who lives in this beach town uh, where he constantly fishes and searches for his uh, Moby Dick a tuna called Justice uh, while he's searching around he's tasked to murder his ex-wife's new lover Anne Hathaway being the wife and then Jason Clark being the abusive asshole husband who is apparently beating their child. Um, who is seen only in like shots of his room on a computer, and occasionally when he's not either having like prostituting himself out for Diane Lane, or um, talking with Jimon Hansu about nothing, uh, Matthew McConaughey keeps uh, getting chased by Jeremy Strong as this guy who keeps trying to sell him a fish finder. And you're thinking, why the fuck does he keep coming and always being exactly, like, so many minutes? Like, he even comments on it at a certain point. And that's because there's a really bullshit twist that happens halfway through this movie. <laughs> uh, that was sort of, like, the only reason anybody talked about this movie, to some extent. Because I had seen, a, like, a trailer for this in, like, late 2018. And I was like, this looks like a forgettable drama thriller kind of thing with Anne Hathaway and Matthew McConaughey that's thrown out in January. And then everybody kept posting about like, guys, there's a really fucked up weird twist that nobody would have expected in this stupid <laughs> thriller movie with these two actors. And uh, Adam, I know you also hadn't seen this, but you heard about sort of the purported twist. Uh, how do you think it worked in context? I mean, honestly, they show you the twist in the opening frame of the fucking yeah. movie. Yeah, it's so obvious. <laughs> Like, obviously, that's what's going on. What the fuck? Why were people so shocked? And then it's 45 minutes in the fucking movie. Oh, spoiler, whatever the fuck. 
the kid's playing the fucking game to like have a relationship with his dad or whatever, then why the fuck are we following any other character 45 minutes into the movie? Why are we having scenes of all these other characters doing lascivious shit? That it doesn't exist. None of that matters. What the fuck is going on? We need these this video game cutscenes to explain bits of the plot. Yeah, <laughs> with his fucking like Nintendo 64 graphic game. Yeah, awesome. This this is shit. The thing is, the story's not even that original. It really isn't when you think about it. Oh, we're all part of some construct. It, the thirteenth floor exists. What what the fuck were they going for here? There, there's so many weird things about this, especially considering this is a video game all made by the sun. So he programmed mm-hmm. every bit we saw in this movie before, like that twist is revealed, including his dad. His mom getting banged. <laughs> yeah, his, his mom getting banged and abused. His Jason Clark being awful to his mother. All this shit. So what do we have to gain? Like this is a tragedy, but then it turns out like, oh, be, he ends up killing Jason Clark. So I guess it's a good thing. But then Matthew McConaughey says like, oh no, we're connected. You're gonna pre-program the video game so you can see me in the video game from your mental asylum. Brianna, help us suss this out somehow. I don't, I just, I kept pausing it, and, like, I mean, I know what fucking happened. It wasn't that complicated, but, like, for one, I felt like the twist happened, like, way too early in the movie, because I was like, oh, God, like, there's still so much more. And there was, even before that point, I think I paused it to do something, and I realized there was still an hour left. I felt trapped. I felt lost. I can sort of see how, like, not knowing the twist and going into it and thinking it's just some typical like fuck you it's january like melodrama like bullshit fair but like then this video game thing happens and it's like oh fuck like what but like knowing knowing that happens just makes it just boring it's just boring no i i completely agree the only thing and i don't think it would have made it any better but i think it made it like slightly yeah twist till the end yeah definitely fucking an hour into the movie and you're like oh sweet 58 minutes to go like what the fuck once you reveal the twist the stakes are gone yeah that i fully lost quick. interest yeah it's 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 uh what the french would call lay bullshit <laughs> what a waste of time and money who the fuck funded this movie what the fuck way to go they got really good actors though and they each got oh, a nice cool. little paycheck and i'm very happy for them all beautiful, beautiful locale they all were on vacation <laughs> they all hung out in florida or whatever <laughs> shaman hansu with his natural accent and matthew mcconaughey with his gruff like reign of fire accent with the southern thing when those two had dialogue what the fuck are they even saying like, what is going on here? John Hans was, like, speaking French in a couple scenes. And Matthew McConaughey, what? Why are we doing this right now? And then Anne Hathaway is playing, like, this femme fatale, like, really, like, 1940s acting it up. Doing it, like, completely miscast. I, I think people give Anne Hathaway a bad rap, like, in these sort of recent years. But this is definitely complete miscasting of her because she just comes in and immediately she's, like, a doe being dressed up as Lauren Bacall. It just, yes. that's what it feels like. She's just coming and she's like, oh, no, I totally know what's going on here. It's like, this is a Princess Diaries bit. <laughs> this is yep. what it just feels like. It's like, oh, I'm just disguising myself as a Finn Patel. It doesn't work at all. And then Matthew McConaughey, I completely agree. This is like him on his off days of the beach bum. Like, yep. when he's having fun <laughs> with fucking Harmony Kareen. Like, he goes, yes. he leaves that. And it's just like, oh, I gotta, I guess, do this. I don't know. I'll... Does this mark the official, like, end of the McConaughey or was that a bit earlier? 
I'm trying to think of like this is the official like it was either this or Dark Tower, one of those two just really marked like no this is over. <laughs> I don't think he ever came back from Dallas Buyers Club. I got to be honest. Maybe True Detective was like his last real fucking like dude this guy's good and then it was kind of like. I think the beach bum keeps it alive. <laughs> That's true. Riding that wave of just sort of like, oh my, he's back. He's can't do any wrong. I would say it's probably around like a dark tower is like where it officially demarks. Because even after like um, True Detective and the Dallas Buyers Club, he still had like Wolf of Wall Street or like an Interstellar, some of these other things that he was still he's consistently doing. But once you get to officially like dark tower, not giving a fuck and this. I think it officially marks just like, well, now you just have a regular career. <laughs> You're not in the wave of this comeback anymore. <laughs> Even though he was in my least favorite theatrical performance of the year, Jason Clark was probably the best in the movie. You fucking hate him. Jason Clark is this weird guy where he takes so many bad movies that I don't know if he's like a good actor in, with a terrible agent. Or he's a potato face. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> oh, he got, does. He does, right? Like, he looks like a potato. Like, it's really weird. He's really odd-looking. He's never handsome, but he's never, like, wholly ugly. Like, he's, like, a guy you'd picture walking to, like, a sailor bar, and he's the guy who's fought everybody in the bar. You know what I mean? He's, like, the middle ground barometer for how you can tell, like, either attractive, not attractive. He's, like, the exact middle point. Like, when you do, like, your video game character to speak to the theme of the movie, and you're, like, at the exact middle of every single feature you could possibly do. Yeah, yeah, like you characterize yeah. your character. That's yeah, Jason Clark. That's Jason Clark's face. Exactly. <laughs> Did you agree with the sentiment that he's the best of the cast, Brianna? I guess he was pretty committed. I don't know. I feel like every actor was giving like a fine performance. Like even Anne Hathaway, who I like shit on on Twitter like a couple days ago. Like I actually like found her like kind of entertaining. Going back to Jason Clark, apparently Jason. Clark plays a lot of cucks, and he's like a cuck in this movie, isn't he? <laughs> I mean, basically, yes. He's, he keeps constantly not recognizing any shadiness at all. Even when you're, like, beat up at the end of the movie, when he's just totally, like, out of it, you figure he would say at just some point, like, why the fuck is this happening? Like, he says something. Like, there's that point where he's like, yeah, why are you calling him by his first name? And, like, that's it? That's the first time it's, like, five minutes left in the movie? <laughs> but that's the worst part about the movie and all the characters in general. Like you say, I can't believe this guy would think of that. It doesn't matter because they're all fucking video game characters. Of course they don't think it. They have no free will, no free thought, no anything. So it literally gives the author play to make these bizarre characters do whatever the fuck they want with no consequence. It's stupid. The only character you should care about, really, because of the story, is the son. And they do dick with him. What is the point of this fucking movie? Honestly, what is the point? There's no referential, like, oh, man, I, maybe I spent too much plugged in. Maybe I should go outside a little more. Oh, man, maybe I should, like, learn to accept who I am. No, it's none of it. You, you would figure, like, the most interesting thing about this movie when that twist is revealed isn't about, like, oh, uh, Matthew McConaughey's been a video game character this whole time as much as now he has sentience that he is a video game character. Yeah. Why not play with that? Like, he's your son has created artificial intelligence that recognizes that it is inside of a, like, technical construct and there's like so much you could do with it i wish almost they just abandoned this stupid story about killing the dad the stepdad and just had him like try to escape like he's in the matrix like at this point just like go fucking buck wild with it go somewhat crazy they kind of do that with like jason clark's weird death 
where he gets dragged by the fucking tuna injustice into the water. It's like, I almost wish they went into more of that thing. Like, Matthew Kai is almost just, like, wants to break the video game. Like, like any person who, like, first gets a video game does, which is, like, I want to see the boundaries and see how much I can screw with, like, whatever parameters I have. She just fucking done that with Matthew McConaughey just breaking with the reality that he's in <laughs> completely. Wait, so is the son actually in a mental institution at the end? Was that real or was that a part of the game? That's another problem, is that you can't quite tell. <laughs> yeah, like, that was weird. Like, because, I don't, I don't even fucking know. I, I had no fucking idea. Because <laughs> like, they draw so many little, like, difference between the real world and the video game world. Yeah. It's alive. And then when you do find out, it just only confuses you about, like, so is Anne Hathaway getting beaten here? Or is she inside of the, like, the boat with Matthew McConaughey? And that weird, like, Denny from The Room kid who suddenly shows up at the end of this movie. Oh, the kid that just appears. <laughs> it's just like, Diane Lane told me you need somebody to help you on the boat. <laughs> Uh, which I do love, especially when he just randomly shows up. It's just like, oh, I hid myself in the barracks or some shit, and I'm just here. And I just really want Matthew McConaughey to murder that kid, just like we can't have any witnesses <laughs> immediately. I, I wish it was just more of that stuff to like try and kind of break the constructs of the video game. There's a few kind of moments where they do something like that. Like there's a bit where Matthew McConaughey's walking and the camera moves around him like the camera in a video game. Hated that. <laughs> oh, I hated that. Because it's weird, because like, that happens very early on in the movie, and it already hints to you what Brianna's talking about. Like, if you knew the twist going in, you would say, like, oh, why did no one ever realize this? If you've ever played a video game in the last ten years, you can kind of see this coming. The way that opening shot is done with the kid at his computer playing the video game, and then the way the camera, like, goes into his eye, and then you're in the world of the movie... I thought, like, even if I didn't already know what happens, I feel like that opening shot is just a dead giveaway. Like, that, they're literally showing you that the world is in this kid. Like, literally physically showing you that. Right, exactly. There's no mystery. <laughs> like, you're like, oh, okay. So this is all in his imagination. Like, instantly, it's all in his mm-hmm. head. yeah. Who the fuck was surprised by this? Well, I think it's only because, as Brianna mentioned, this is a classic example of, like, a fuck you, it's January movie, where it's dumped out there. And I just think the few people who saw Serenity, like, because this didn't have any, like, critic screenings or much promotion of any kind, every in pictures really wanted to bury this movie because of, like, all these bad test screenings that were happening. I really wouldn't be surprised if it was just, like, the few, like, the five people that bought tickets on, like, the Thursday night showings just walked in. No one assumed that this movie would be dumb enough to do that twist, and the movie challenged their expectations <laughs> at yeah. every turn. I think that's kind of what it is. It's like, I feel like everyone just thought it was going to be just like some regular January, just boring kind of melodrama, and then this video game twist really kind of like, I guess, threw them off in the moment. Because like a lot of critics that I know were all also like very surprised like not just like normal like everyday like movie going audience like they were still like surprised by it because I think they just went in with like a certain expectation of what this kind of movie was going to be and that was just not what it was to be, yeah to be fair if you told me like here's this thriller starring Matthew McConaughey and Anne Hathaway and it's like a, a thriller released in January I would not immediately jump to oh it's going to be a video game twist yeah exactly yeah you don't think there's going to be right. any sort of like you know like surprising twist I mean, I, I wouldn't have thought that from, like, the poster or anything. 
No, and well, the, the trailers didn't reveal any of that. And then even if you're like halfway through this movie before they even say this, which you're like, they're not going to do this, right? They're not. That's not going to happen. And it does happen. Okay, maybe maybe that's right. If I wasn't looking for the twist, maybe even with the opening spelled out in front of your shot, I might not have picked up on it. I just, who the fuck knows what's happening here? I'll give them credit for the balls to reveal their main fucking crux of the movie an hour in. But why? Why? What was the decision behind that even? The only thing you had going for you is this bullshit twist. Why do it? No, yeah, they just got really antsy, it feels like. They're just like, oh, we got this here, and we're in the middle of this boring fucking thriller movie. Don't leave. Don't leave. Don't leave. Check it out. <laughs> That's Good almost God. what it feels like. But I think we, we've exhausted all of our talk on Serenity here. So uh, we'll start with, uh, Brianna, your final thoughts on Serenity, if you have any left. A waste of my time. Just a waste of my time. An hour and 46 minutes I'm not getting back. Well, it got you on this lovely podcast, and aren't it you so happy about it? That's true. Okay, there's one positive. <laughs> Would you say this is definitely the worst one you've seen this year? No, not okay. at all. It's, like, still way better <laughs> than, like, quite a few movies I saw. <laughs> what would you say is the worst one you've seen yeah. this year, out of curiosity? Um, I'm actually on my letterbox right now. There's, like, a movie I saw at Tribeca, and then a movie I saw at New York Film Festival. I doubt either of you have heard of them. One is called Gully. And one is called I Was At Home But. And those were like my two worst movies of the year. But then before that, my two worst movies of the year are Dark Phoenix and The Highwaymen. Yeah, Dark Phoenix I can especially get. <laughs> Awful. Just that, actually, that was a literal nightmare. Dark Phoenix I didn't even bother with. What the fuck? Well, Adam, uh, while you got the floor now, uh, while you're still on the floor, uh, your final thoughts on Serenity. I'll just repeat what I just said. Serenity, what the fuck? Why? It is an ultimately forgettable movie. The twist to me isn't even that shocking to like be like, oh yeah, but the, you know, to remember it. It's just garbage. It, it's just this movie was made for no one. This movie was made for the writer and director. That's the only reason. There, I I can't understand anybody who would be into this movie. And not, I mean, everyone's opinion is their own, but I just don't see what this movie offers to anyone. Well, yeah, I mean, I'll, I agree with what both of you are saying <laughs> in terms of how quite terrible it is. And it's not it, – it's that weird thing where we've t I've talked about since we do bad movies all the time. The sort of three different types of movies are genuinely just completely awful, so bad they're good, and then studio train wreck bad where you're just like, how the fuck did this happen? How many people either didn't come in to stop being what it is or the exact opposite, how many just like – too many cooks in the kitchen and this falls somewhere in between just genuinely bad and too many cooks in the kitchen like studio train wreck bad where it's just like i'm only enthralled in this because i can't believe you're doing what the fuck you're doing on any level why any of these people are here why matthew mcconaughey got nude for this then again he probably just wanted to do it anyway i'm sure that was just on the day he's like can i get nude and just get into the water and talk to my weird kind of son I guess because I'm a video game projection of his father. Um, all, all this shit that's just like, it's the only kind of interest you might have is just the bafflement that it exists at all. And that's uh, our talk on Serenity. And uh, before we get to our next film, um, here is an ESO show you can queue up right after our podcast. Do you enjoy pop culture? Of course you do. You're already listening to pop culture podcasts here on the ESO Network. 
the Rusted Robot Podcast discusses movies, trailers, TV shows, space and robot news, and so much more. Won't you please join us for a pop culture overload wherever you listen to podcasts? TheRustedRobot.Podbean.com, a proud partner of the SoulForge Podcast here on the ESO Network. The Rusted Robot Podcast. Think about it. All right, now let's get into our good feature, The Irishman. Hello? Is that Frank? Yes. Hiya, Frank. This is Jimmy Hoffa. Well, you know, there's a situation going on now, Frank. You might be demonstrating a failure to show appreciation. Sooner or later, everybody put here as a date when he's going to go. Would you like to be a part of this history? Yes, I would. Whatever you need me to do, I'm available. So The Irishman, uh, obviously, is uh, the latest film from Martin Scorsese. Reunites him with Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci. It's his first film with Al Pacino. And there's a huge amount of people in the cast. Uh, it's written by Steve Zalian, based on the book I Heard You Paint Houses uh, by Charles Brandt, which is based on the actual, um, or at least alleged, tellings of the real-life person Frank Sheeran, who was involved in the uh, mob in um, Philadelphia, and probably bullshitted a lot. Which I've heard some people say have issue with this movie about like like Frank Sheeran is just completely out of whack. He's just puffing himself up. But I feel weirdly like that kind of fits perfectly into the narrative of this movie. That's just a complete almost ego trip for a man who has absolutely nothing. Which I find really fascinating. Only adds to me with that movie. Would you agree, Brianna, as a big fan of the film? I only recently saw the thing about how Frank is like an unreliable narrator and I I briefly skimmed through another article I think that was like talking about how the circumstances surrounding Jimmy Hoffa's death or lack thereof are just like so murky and it's hard to know what Frank she in, in real life you know what he made up and what is fact I feel like anytime you watch a movie through the eyes of one like narrator telling you the story of what happened I feel like there are automatically unreliable and biased and you're only seeing you know a part of the story and one perspective really and I saw another thing something about the way that um Frank being the only perspective of the story also adds to the way the women in the story are are portrayed as like an afterthought like they're Peggy doesn't speak a lot in the movie and they're barely there because this movie is through Frank's perspective and because, like, they were barely there to him, so they're barely there to us, the audience. No, 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 it's it's totally fine. Believe me, the moment I knew that this was going to end up being the movie thanks to the poll, I was just like, I'm so glad I picked Rihanna for this. Yeah! (laughs) Because when I started following you on Twitter, it was right before you started going full Irishman crazy. Now I know you're in your uncut uncut gems phase. Woo! Which I haven't seen yet. I'm very jealous. I can't wait till Christmas and I get to see it. But but anyway, let's. I want to also hear from Adam because unlike Brianna and myself, you didn't get a chance to see this before our recording. You actually held off on doing it because you picked it here. And you're like, I want to wait until we can confirm that it's going to be the pick that we do for the show. All three and a half hours of it. And uh, what'd you think of it, Adam? Let me preface with, I... As we talked about on the Scorsese episode, I am a huge, huge Scorsese fan. And we've talked about it on other episodes. I'm also a huge Pacino fan. I'm a huge De Niro fan. I'm a huge Pesci fan. I love these guys. So to see them all together at the age they are now in the twilight of their career on in one film 
A, was amazing. B, just some of the best performances I've seen this year. Actually, maybe the last 10 years in this film. Um, I really, really did love the movie. I Well, love might be strong. I really, really liked the movie. I do have a couple issues with it. But <laughs> no, hold on now, hold on now. You know, put, so put down I, your blowtorch for now. We gotta hold on. <laughs> hold on now. Hold on. Okay. No, I really do love the movie. I, I think it's great. I do think there's a point where it should have ended, and they kept going. But the digital de-aging, god damn, is it weird? Oh, I, mean, I was was gonna finish that for you and say, oh, it was good. Well, my thing is, it's young De Niro's face on a clearly 70-year-old De Niro's body. So it's like when he beat up the grocery clerk. Yeah. I'm like, what? This is just weird looking to me. Like, this, I don't, I can't handle this. Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Young Kurt Russell's face was on a different, younger man's body. Like, it's I, completely I, believable. I think I'll say this much. I agree with you to some extent, but it's more of like, I would say it hits three out of four times. And that one out of four times that it doesn't work for me is usually when De Niro's in daylight and it's like just certain shots where it's like, because it, it works so much better when like that cascade in shadow or different things or on Pacino and Pesci because they're playing older guys anyway. And I think that works the best where it's like, oh, we're making this like 70 year old guy look like he's 45. That works a lot better than making De Niro in his 70s look kind of like, especially in that one flashback where it's him in World War II and it just looks like, oh man, I'm playing as Robert De Niro in Call of Duty oh, 7 or whatever. Yeah. That that's the worst example um but otherwise i think it works better than not and you i'm guessing based on your cries of anger brianna you agree with that sentiment yeah like i mean i don't think it's great but i don't think any like de-aging is like great there's always going to be the issue where their faces just look too plasticky and um i watch these like the vfx artists react to corridor videos and i i like mm-hmm. them because the vfx artists just talk about um, what makes they will they talk about the art of, of VFX, which I find really interesting, and they talk about what has to go into recreating a face to make it look real, and so much of it has to do with like getting the pores on our face right, and and because um, without them, the face will just look too plastic, and and for what they did, they did a really good job. I mean, it's still I feel like no no fucking de aging can get those like pores right. They're never gonna be perfect there's always going to be that little like plasticky look but when I saw it in the theater for the first time like I I noticed it right away especially with De Niro but then after the war scene which is like super fast I mean that's like the most I feel like egregious CGI because they had to make him look the youngest but it Mm -hmm. lasts like five seconds and then it's done and then the rest of the movie is like fine I didn't even notice Pesci and Pacino I thought they were great actually Absolutely. Pesci is part of the best. Like, I just thought, oh, they dyed his hair. Yeah! I agree. Uh, I will say this, too, and maybe it's because I grew up with De Niro, and I'm such a huge fan, as I'm sure both of you are, too. The blue eyes, too. Oh, yeah! It was a little weird for me. Maybe that's what threw me off the most, because I'm like, Yes. It's like he's got glaucoma. Like, what the <laughs> fuck? I think it does. I think it does add to it. Because I, I, I actually had to point it out to my friend when I saw it. And he hadn't noticed it. But I, I noticed it the whole time. And I think it does add to, like, a bit of an uncanniness. 
with him. Like, you know, you always know something is not quite right with his face. I think a big part that we're not really talking about is the fact that this is extremely innovative in terms of if you look at any of the behind the scenes stuff. Like I watched Netflix recently put out like an in conversation thing where it's Pacino, Pesci, Scorsese and uh, De Niro talking about the movie for like 20 minutes. And they talk about the fact that they were originally going to do this at a point where they would have had to have tennis balls, like the little round things on their faces. And Scorsese's like, I need these guys to be natural. And that's just going to be really fucking stupid mm, <laughs> if they have yeah. to talk to each other with tennis balls. So they actually had to like, they waited out the technology. Part of the reason this was in production for so long and they had to like pause it for a bit was they had to create this whole system where like they had so many cameras because Scorsese likes shooting with at least a couple cameras on set. And each of those cameras had three different lenses to track all these faces and stuff with only a limited amount of dots like on their faces, mm. which is amazing. Like they're completely like shifting this technology in a different way with this movie. So I can kind of forgive a bit more of like, oh, hey, some of this doesn't always look the best. But in any case, it doesn't really matter nearly as much because the actual craft and the story and the acting and everything else just really blows any concerns about that out of the water. Yeah, I felt like I didn't even really have much of an issue with the de-aging, but I feel like it's it's so easily overshadowed by literally everything else the movie's doing. It doesn't even matter. I don't know how anyone can be really that distracted by it. Well, especially because it's all in like the first hour of this three and a half hour long movie anyway, really. Most it's like, of the, yeah. Most of more egregious examples, and by that time you've like completely forgotten it. And so, Brianna, I did want to ask, so given your love of this movie, are you a huge Scorsese fan in general? And if so, how do you feel this kind of fits with his career? I love everything I've seen from Martin Scorsese. I have not, I, I don't think I've watched nearly enough. Like, I've seen all of his recent stuff. Like, I've seen Hugo, Wolf of Wall Street. I haven't seen Silence. I've seen... Taxi Driver and Goodfellas and Shutter Island and like I've seen a lot but but I'm I'm definitely like way behind but I mean I'm I'm a fan of like everything I've seen I I love Martin Scorsese what was the rest of your question sir <laughs> well <laughs> yes you the lone hero in the back um I was just asking like so how do you feel this based on what you've seen of his previous career how do you think like how much of this feels so reflective especially with like a Goodfellas you would argue this feels pretty reflective on like especially his mob movies like Goodfellas yeah. and all that. people saying that like oh this is just another mob movie I mean I like it's not really what the movie is about and I mean you could argue that any of his any of his movies about the mob are not really what like the movie is about like I, and I don't think he's especially especially this fucking movie I don't think he's glorifying the mob the movie I wrote in my recap of like my favorite movies of the year like the movie is about when you give your life to something that doesn't care about you and like what you what you lose when that happens um, it's not about, you know, glorifying the mob or, oh, the mob is cool. Like, that's just like an extra added little, like, bit of fun. I think to say that the movie is in any, in any respect trying to make the mob look fun or glorifying it, of this movie in particular, is just wildly out of touch with what you've seen. And I've seen so many takes, so many bad takes where people think that, and I'm like, you really just sat there for 210 minutes? This movie that ends with, like, a sad old man who's lost everyone in his life, and he needs the door open, like, a little bit because it reminds him of his good boy, Jimmy Hoffa. Like, you really, like, you end that movie, and that's what you think, that this movie was just a fun, grand old time of, like, men hanging out and killing each other. Like, oh, my God, get fucked. No, I, I definitely agree with 
actually, I think most of Scorsese's movies, if not all the ones that particularly deal with the mafia, do not glorify it. Yeah. They show, they show just, it fucks you. Right. Like, these people do not care about it. It's all about crime. I'd argue people who talk about, like, the glorious mob movies, that would be like a Scarface or the Godfather movies or things like that, where they show these people, you know, living lives of luxury and all that. These people in this movie are seedy, backstabbing sons of bitches who don't care about anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, I do agree. The one thing about the movie that really kind of hit me was De Niro was a broken down old man. Like mm. he's he's by himself. He's on crutches. He's falling in the hallway. He's got no one there. His kids don't want to talk to him. He, he's talking to a priest and he doesn't want to confess to him. He's got to have the door open at night. All this bullshit. And yet, when you go in the past, this dude was a merciless killer who did anything that the mafia asked him to do. He lived his life on blood money, and look where it got him, alone and afraid. I don't want to say it's a tragic story, because he's not a redeemable character. I mean, at all. He was a murderer uh, who literally killed fathers in front of their children. I mean, that's what he did. But it just goes to show that you know, even this stylized lifestyle and these idols that we make out of these criminals and the mafiosos or whatever you want to call them, these guys are just fucking guys. They're just fucking errand boys at the end of the day who literally do not reap any benefits from any of the shit they do. Fucking Joe Pesci in this movie. Goddamn. It's so unlike like what we know Joe Pesci as. Like this 100%, is 100, and I'm like, this... why is it Joe Pesci still acting more? God damn it, he's so fucking good. And then Ray Muppet voice Romano, like <laughs> how good is he in this too? <laughs> so what the fuck? No, and it's oh, it's a cast God. full of so many like phenomenal people, like Bobby Cannavale or oh yeah, or uh, my my favorite of like sort of like the non like bigger people, Stephen Graham from Boardwalk Empire. Oh my God, he's so good. <laughs> <laughs> I just, love Stephen Graham. He he's so phenomenal, especially in in this movie where he's constantly got to like act up against Pacino, it's particularly in that great scene in the Miami restaurant where they're arguing each other about like being late and all oh. this other stuff. He he goes toe to toe with him so perfectly, and I heard that apparently the whole like um uh, twelve and a half bit was him just being so nervous about being with Pacino that he's like going over to De Niro like, can you give me a bit of a life raft? And he's like, yeah, twelve and a half works great. <laughs> like that's fun. Yeah, like, I read that. Yeah. Yeah. He's so good. I I always know him from like Snatch. I always yes. remember him, um, mm-hmm. but holy fuck, is he good? And he's genuinely kind of intimidating. This like the way he just kind of stares at him with those black eyes he's got, even though they are contacts as well. But he's very very intimidating. And to throw throw another bone, dude, fucking Pacino. Oh. Jesus Christ, this is like the perfect balance of young Pacino and old Pacino. You know what I mean? Where he's over the top and crazy, but he's still understated. Like, he brings it, you guys are fucking killing me! You killed me, that's it, I'm going to jail. In admittingly a phenomenal performance from him, my favorite bit is definitely him just like, on his fucking father's, he repeats it so many times, and he's just like, I'm going to prison, you realize this? I'm going to prison, like, he just breaks it. It's it's so perfect, and it's especially great because the three main guys in here, like you mentioned, Joe Pesci hasn't been in a movie in so long, and Pacino and De Niro have been acting in the last, like, 25 years, but this is, like, easily their best performance in ages for any of them. I mean, without a doubt. I'm trying to think of the last, like, non- 
dirty grandpa movie that De Niro has been in before this. When I say any dirty grandpa like movie, I mean that and then that other movie that he was in, I think. The, the, the dirty grandpa <laughs> cinematic universe, so we're all aware the of it. Dirty grandpa. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that. Like the intern and the meet the parents movies. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh... He, he made him a lot of his more recent works just like being sort of like a parody of himself. Or just completely not giving shit whatsoever. I mean, but... Wait, guys. Uh, wait, wait. Well, he was in Joker this year. How could I forget? Oh, my God. Yeah, you get it? Because that's a reference to another Scorsese. Oh! Well, then, yeah, there. There we go. So the last good role that, that he was in that wasn't Dirty Grandpa was Joker. All right, we settled it. It's solved. Mystery solved. All settled. No argument with that whatsoever. <laughs> uh, to go back to something you were talking about earlier, Adam, in, in terms of just like the sort of the deconstructing of the, the mob. What I love so much is the first hour of this movie, I would argue, kind of feels like sort of his older Goodfellas style with like the quick montages, a lot of just like sort of like the rise into the mob. But ingeniously, like with each hour, it becomes less and less flashy until you get to the last hour of this movie, which is masterful in terms of how unflashy it is. Like, anything from when Joe Pesci tells him, like, you gotta go and kill Huffa, and the just methodical slow pace of him, like, getting in the car with Jesse Plemons and the other guy, and it's, like, all the fish thing, and then picking up oh. Huffa. So much tension and dread in complete nothingness happening. <laughs> it's so masterfully done. Exactly, and even to the point to where when the movie starts within, like, the first hour, it's classic Scorsese. It's got the, you know, the rock music or the music of the time and all this shit, like, real bombastic. And then it slowly sort of fades out. It really does to where the last, like you said, hour of this movie, there's, like, no music. It's real quiet and real monologue-heavy, which he always does. But it, it's it becomes a real personal sort of story about one man instead of all these other characters which which was really smart too where instantly when he when characters are introduced you know he he died from six shots to the head in an alley right yeah like you already know the fate of all these guys before it happens even if you don't know the actual story of jimmy hoffa they give it to you right then and there and i i think that was a very smart play on his part um and let's face it, the fact that this, you know, yes, it did have a limited theatrical run, but the fact that this is a fucking Netflix movie, are you out of your fucking mind? What is happening with the state of cinema? Like, honestly. Well, it, it's just a tragic thing of, like, Scorsese has said that, like, he tried to get this made with several different studios, and then yeah. wanted to front, like, the, what was it, like, $150 million budget to, like, do all the de-aging and all this other stuff, and the salaries of everybody involved, and the production design and all this other stuff. At the same time, it's something where, like, I appreciate at least that, like, Netflix, for as many issues as I might have with, like, how they don't promote things sure. all this other stuff, mm-hmm. they put so much into the Irishman like even the fact that I was able to see this in the theater even and like like here like I got to see it in the old historical landmark theater was like so you both saw it in theaters yeah. both of you did yes yeah, yes right. I'll go, I'll, you know what I'll go fuck myself you guys, <laughs> you guys go ahead you guys go ahead and finish the episode fuck me right ah! I could project it on my wall at home guys whatever it's the same thing <laughs> It makes you feel better. My screening was, like, fucked up. Like, the sound was, like, fucked up the entire time. So, like, it was actually better. It was better when I watched it at home. It, it does it. I had a four-year-old constantly bothering me while I was watching it. Uh... Daddy, why are you watching this? I don't like this. <laughs> Go to your room! <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I, I just at least do appreciate, like, Netflix, like, at least has the weird sort of fuck you money in its own way to be like, we'll front the Scorsese movie, whatever. We're millions of dollars in debt. We don't give a shit. We're going to allow a filmmaker to do this and at least give him, like, the over a 30-day theatrical window, which they never do for any other movie. So I I just give them that much with it. And that they were even able to make this a thing because this has been, like I said, in production for like a decade or so. They kept saying like, oh, we're going to do this and we're going to get Pacino and Pesci back, especially Pesci, because he hadn't been in the movie in like a decade. Like two decades, I think. I think I read it was like 20 or 25 years. He quit in like 99. And then in 2010, he did a random comedy with Helen Mirren where he runs a bordello. Oh. That I only found out about because of doing research for this episode. That's right. No, I know exactly what you're talking about. And That's then he quit for another 10 years, and then he did this movie. Oh, shit. Is... Oh, man. He's so fucking good in this movie. The thing is, his performance is so good that there's no question that whatever room he's in, he is in charge. Right. That's how right. good he is. Oh, yeah. And yet he's kind and soft-spoken. Yeah. And really bothered to like him. And it's really like, no, don't worry about it. You're with me. You're never going to get hurt. He doesn't raise his voice. He doesn't do anything. But there's no question that he is the most dangerous man in the room. Right. The tragic element of this, while I do agree that, like, these guys are all, you know, they made the bet that they're going to lie in alone and old and terrible and cold. Um, But at the same time, the tragedy is just, like, when you actually get the scenes of, like, uh, Hoffa and Frank or uh, Frank and uh, Russell Buffalino, when you get them interacting with each other, the tragedy is, like, if they met under completely different circumstances, these could all be, like, men who are genuine, like, loyal friends forever, if it was just under completely different circumstances, because they have a great chemistry with each other. But the thing is, the trappings all around this end up completely, like, screwing them over all by their own design. I think that's that's the tragedy. There's more of, like, a human general tragedy that's there with it. And also just, you know, watching De Niro be that old is, like, the most scary horror film of 2019. Because <laughs> it's just like, Jesus fucking Christ. They it's, really, it's... they drag that out. Like, the scene where he falls, is just like horrible like I watched it with my parents next to me and like my dad is like he just turned 71 and I was like sitting there like watching him watching it and I was like oh fuck my my dad's getting old like that could be my dad in like 10 years and they just draw that scene out like you watch him fall and like crumple up on the floor and then immediately he's in the nursing home and it's just it's just it's horrific and devastating Especially when it gets down to, like, the this scene that completely broke me down in the theater was him at the bank trying to get oh. to impact one's attention. Because, like, there's a basic human tragedy that immediately hits you. It's just like, oh, my God, that's so ups- upsetting to see De Niro with those freaking canes on his arm and him just, like, awkwardly shuffling back out after she completely shuts him out. Mm. But at the same time, you're also thinking, like, well, he made this bed. Right. Exactly. There's so much there. exactly. And um, you kind of talked about this earlier, Brianna, about the whole Anna Paquin mm. element of it all has received, to quote you, various bad takes. Nice. Uh, and uh, why don't you explain to everybody out there why it's such a bad take that she has a lesser role in this movie because she doesn't have that many lines? Well, it's because people are, like, quantifying a woman's, the importance of a woman's presence in a film with how many lines she says. And I feel like, for one, that reduces a woman's presence in a film to, like, a number. So that's just bullshit from the get-go. I did see a really good take that basically tried to um, interrogate how women have been portrayed in mob films. And, like, I think also, like, how women have probably been 
treated in the mob as, you know, afterthoughts. And if this film is culpable because it, it, if it does the same thing that these other films do by also addressing it, like it's addressing it and acknowledging what these other films have done. But like, does that free it of doing that thing (laughs) or does that make it culpable? And it, it wasn't, you know, being like, oh, her role isn't important, but it was an interesting question. But I mean, her, her, her role in the film is she's like the conscience, you know, she sees everything that Frank has done. She is ever watchful. And at the same time, her silence, as I said earlier, is also a byproduct of the fact that this is Frank's story. So for Frank, Peggy and all the women in his life are afterthoughts. So for us, they are also an afterthought. I saw another thing. I was saying how it was so much easier for her to digest um, Jimmy Hoffa and see him as more of like a father figure because the whole time, you know, she she knows what Jimmy does and that he's associated with her father and he does maybe like even worse things than her father. But it's like when it comes down to it, Frank was the man who she saw assault and curb curb stomp or whatever, crush crush a man's finger against a curb, like when she was a child. Like she saw that ugliness. Whereas Jimmy Hoffa is, you know, nothing but kind and sweet and fatherly and has ice cream with her. It's different. Frank, like at the end of the movie, talks to one of his other daughters about just like, well, I was trying to protect you. And it's like, what are you protecting us from, if anything, like it's more that he protected them from this world by completely closing them off from him as a person. Yes. Which is yeah. so fascinating. Cause I, it weirdly kind of fits into something that like, if you're a fan of De Niro, you know that if you've ever seen him attempt to do an interview, it's the most cringy, awkward thing ever. <laughs> Cause he doesn't speak at all by himself. Like he mm-hmm. can't right. talk on his own. I think he puts that sort of natural awkwardness that he has in his normal life into this part where it's just like, oh, the only way I know how to communicate with my daughters or my wife or any of these other people is through, like, doing basic tasks. Like, oh, I'll go to bowling, but I'll sit over here and talk to Joe Pesci. I'm really not going to talk to, like, my wife or my daughters or anything like that because it, he feels so closed off, maybe because of his, like, issues, like, post-war. He feels like he's just kind of, like, closed off because of, like, the sins that are already there and those sins he can use to perpetrate afterward. It feels as if he's just like, I can't relate to you as a human, but I can quote-unquote protect you like I'm a knight guarding like a tower. And that ends up just completely alienating him from his entire family, especially Anna Paquin, or I don't remember the younger actress's name who plays her when she's a little kid, but her fucking piercing giant eyes just say so much in like any of those scenes where, like you mentioned, the big sort of uh, curb-stomping scene, or mm. when even they're just like eating dinner and she's like looking up at him with that doe face. It just says so much about how she doesn't consider a father, her father a person as much as just, like, an object in the room. Yes. Or the, her fear of Joe Pesci's character and the scene of them at Christmas where he gives her the ice skates and she very hesitantly says thank you. And then he's like, look, there's something else there for you. And it's a $100 bill. And she just doesn't say anything. And Frank is like, say thank you. And Joe Pesci is like, she, she said it once. Like, he knows she knows and then her lack of saying thank you is just there's so there's so much to that you know like she knows she knows what that money is from she knows what he's trying to do get her to like him and like I mean he I feel like there's a there's some purity to him trying to get her to like him but she knows what comes with that you know 
Right, because he at least has the acknowledgement of like, look, I can't have kids with my wife, and I would give anything to have what you have, Frank, with with this beautiful gift that you have with any of your yeah. daughters. Yeah. Anything like that. He at least acknowledges, like, this is something I can never have, and I can at least be appreciative of it from this stance. Versus Frank is just like, oh, I had that immediately in front of me. I'm going to go fuck up with Jimmy Hoffa, you know, and just do whatever. Um, but, mm-hmm. Adam, you haven't gotten to talk that much about this. Do you agree with our sentiments? <laughs> I absolutely do. Uh, one thing I do want to bring up, though, because we're on the subject of Nero, uh, and you guys were talking about the scenes that kind of made you break. That fucking phone call. Oof. Oh. When he's stammering and stuttering, which he does throughout the whole movie, which great choice, by the way. But that phone call to Joe Hoffa, I mean, I'm literally watching going, oh, my God. Oh, my God. This is fucking. Oh, my God. And I felt sympathy for that character in that moment. Like I said earlier, he's a completely unsympathetic character. But that moment, it literally like floored me. That's how good the writing is, the acting is, the story is in this movie. It, it's just a beautiful scene. And that also gives credence to what you guys were talking about earlier, where, you know, that that day when he made that phone call was the last time he saw well, his daughter talk to him that day. Mm-hmm. Because she knew oh man, my dad fucking killed Jimmy Hoffa in the context of the film. He killed Jimmy Hoffa. Did it happen? Who the hell knows? Yeah, right. Yeah. But in the context context of the film, yeah, he did, and they had that, you know, loving relationship. So, I mean, it was just fuck what a scene. I mean, fucking hell. Why? It, it's what a pretty good movie, right? Yeah. It's, it's a good. monument. Well, it's a monument. It's a monumental movie. It really is. You get Scorsese, who arguably birthed his own genre of film. With the mafia epic, you get the master of the genre he had a hand in creating, delivering a film starring the titans of the genre at their age, and they are all firing on all cylinders. There's no bad performance in this film. There's no bad editing choice. You mentioned the editing aspect of it, but at the beginning, you did talk about there was a point where you felt the film should have ended. It's about a half hour too long. Oh my god, the last half hour though has all the tragic stuff oh. we're talking about. No, 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 no. Oh. I'm not saying that the last half hour shouldn't be there. What I'm saying is the it's just it's a little too long. Maybe there's there could have been a little bit more tightening. But what would you get out though? What would what would you possibly delete from this? Yeah, what yeah, let's hear it. Yeah, what would you take out? What do you think yeah, shouldn't be there? Yeah, what what do you think? Come on. Huh. Uh, the World War II scene, I don't care if it's a minute or thirty seconds, that can go. That's fine. No, it needs to be there. <laughs> it's part of Martin Scorsese's design. I'm arguing with two people who gave this fucking movie five stars. Mm. What the fuck? <laughs> All right, let's put it this way. It felt like at the end, they tried to redeem an irredeemable character. Mm, no. no, no. If anything, he's wildly condemned to a, a life of... A remaining life of suffering and... You don't think that they were baiting for sympathy for the character? No. No. His life is miserable. I feel like the goal is to be like, oh, look at this. Well, maybe not Scorsese's goal, but I could see where it'd be like, oh, this poor guy. Well, I mean, there's have a bit of that in terms of just like basic human empathy. But the interesting thing is the right. movie constantly presents him as somebody who lacks that. That's what's so yeah. fascinating. 
is you feel empathy, but you're constantly reminded, even during that last half hour, that he has no empathy whatsoever. Like, when he's talking to the priest. Yes, I was su- just thinking that, yeah. That's such a fucked up moment where he's just like, well, do you feel any remorse? He's like, well. That scene snapped me back. That scene snapped me back. Because after he shot Hoffa, spoiler, 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 but after he shot Hoffa, I'm like, well, I, I think we're kind of good here. Because they, you got like 20 minutes of, well, I don't, you know, whatever. But then the scene with him and the priest, I'm like, oh, okay, no, you're not supposed to care about this motherfucker. But what I'm saying is, I think that's, I think that last half hour is why it's getting such love it or hate it reviews. I really. Do. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? I, I love like the high pitched dog whistle sound you just made. <laughs> I'm not saying the three of us don't love it. I'm saying I could see why the people who don't, I, I think it's maybe the last half hour that kills it for them. I really do. What Brianna was talking about, where some people were saying the, the glamorizing element of it, it feels like people turned it off maybe halfway through. And it's just like, yeah, I give the rest of it, whatever. It's going to be a Scorsese movie. It's going to be flash, flash, bang, bang. But, like, everything, like, after that Hoffa death sequence, like, it's so drawn out, but that's so totally the point and completely debilitates that take of, like, oh, it's totally aggrandizing the mob. Down to him going to fucking Action Bronson's uh, Coffins R Us. Action um, Bronson's Coffins! <laughs> I, I, I want that commercial now. <laughs> Action Bronson's Coffins. Yes! Oh, fuck. Somebody make this, please. Buy two, get one free. It's a, it's a great deal. We got a Christmas sale. Everybody must God. go in the coffin. Um, but, like, that scene, especially, I think, really crystallizes it where he is just saying, like, oh, hey, we got this and this. And, like, who's it for? Me. Oh, fuck. Um, well, what, what do you see? What do you like? <laughs> like, I think that does such a great job of selling the dark humor, which we haven't talked about that much. Like, this movie's really fucking funny. Like, throughout most of, like, it's surprisingly funny, like, especially earlier on. Like, th- that just feels like the dark humor and the sort of inherent human tragedy, but not the tragedy or sympathy for Frank specifically. Just more the process of, like, well, fuck, if you grow old and you've completely shut everyone out of your life, even if it's not through mob ties, if it's just, like, through your own bullshit, um, any person would have some basic empathy of, like, oh, fuck, that's a terrible way to end your fucking life. <laughs> that's the most miserable way possible. Him picking out his own fucking, like grave thing in that one funeral, uh, yeah. that, that, that one cemetery I forgot it's like all the walls in and the shit mausoleum yeah the mausoleum right mm. um it's it's it, it just sells so so much of that I I really doubt anybody who actually watched the whole movie would genuinely think like oh that's grandizing the mob you know I I completely agree I don't think this movie grandizes the mob at, at all I mean these people you know it just shows you know they had their fingers in politics they had their fingers in everything and, and none of it ever worked for them like i said earlier the flashes of their names on screens all these people died horrible murderous deaths either you know in alleyways or on street corners or any unglamorous fucking deaths or in prison you know it's nothing nothing ever good came for any of these people any of the mafia uh and even these real guys the ones who were involved with the teamsters and the unions and everything they all ended up dead uh, I don't think this movie glamorizes it at all. In fact, I think this movie is sort of almost the opposite of Goodfellas. Now, Goodfellas does show what happens to Henry Hill, but it does glamorize the mafia in a way, or even Casino does in a way, you know, all the money they get and everything else. 
this movie is almost the perfect counterpoint to that to where none of that shit is going to get you anywhere you're going to die alone and old right but again even like with goodfellas it ends with like henry hills like well i'm in witness protection but at least i'm still alive and i'm in this house or whatever and ends there as opposed to like this movie is the ingenious thing of like well if we followed henry hill up to his death and we saw just like oh this guy had nobody in his life i think that's what makes it so like essential after that point yeah, I, I 100% agree with you. Well, well, while you have the floor, Adam, I guess your, your final thoughts is you can muster them about The Irishman. I really like it. Is it is it my favorite Scorsese movie? Uh, probably not. I mean, it's in my top five Scorsese movies, maybe my top three even. I do, do really, really enjoy all the performances in it. It really made me want to see Joe Pesci do more work. I think Joe Pesci absolutely steals the movie. It made me want more Harvey Keitel in the movie because I thought he was great, which we didn't mention him. I loved Ray Romano in it, which is crazy because I'm not a fan of his. Uh, and it's also a piece of history that I feel has been more and more forgotten as time goes on. Like, I grew up knowing somewhat about Jimmy Hoffa. Uh, like, I wasn't alive during Jimmy Hoffa's days, but I remember there was a big joke like, oh, they found Jimmy Hoffa. Like, I th- it's been in movies. I think it was even in The Simpsons, stuff like that. Uh, but a lot of people don't know about this thing that happened. Like, what the fuck? It's a huge part of American history. And I think this movie really does a good job of kind of, you know, throwing that back out there. I, I really, really do think this is a great movie. I hope it's not Scorsese's last movie. But if it is, it's a good note to go out on. I mean, it's also, it, he wants to keep working, but at the same time, it feels like this should be his last gangster movie, if nothing else. I think so. It does feel like sort of his final statement on that. I also do love, you You mentioned about the um, sort of people forgetting about the past. Another great scene with uh, What's-Her-Face from uh, Orange is the New Black is the Nurse. Ah, and, yes. Yes, where she just talks about, just like, oh yeah, who's that? And it's like, oh, you, you, Jimmy Hoffa, you, you probably don't know him. No, I don't. It's just like, that adds another layer where it's like, oh, you might think, oh, at least people might remember me in terms of like legacy and history. You get forgotten. Doesn't fucking matter. Uh, but, Brianna, your final thoughts on The Irishman. Loved it. I love a good movie about men being horrible and interrogating their mortality. And uh, it's hard to say exactly why I love it, but I, I like I like movies that are super, like... Um, like macho, you know, guys being dudes, but at the heart of it all is a critique on, you know, masculinity and men's relationships with one another, their relationships in this case with women as well. It's such a, you know, it's such a tapestry. The film is such a a tapestry of, of these men and their relationships and their legacy and their crimes and I and I love a good long movie and I just remember sitting in that theater when Frank turns around and shoots Jimmy and just like I just immediately started crying like and that hug that they share between each other like it's it's not just a movie about guys being associated with each other in the mob it's about you know these these real connections forged and you know the fact that this guy just fucking like betrayed everyone he loved for for what for money for approval and in the end he has nothing and i just think that's wonderful the end (laughs) (laughs) 
well said. Uh, but I, I mean, I obviously like I, I really do agree. I think people use this term a lot for like big epic movies, especially whenever they come out around sort of Oscar time from big directors. But this is one of the few examples where like this feels genuinely Shakespearean. And I mean that in terms of like how Shakespeare would take historical events and completely fuck with actual history. Like, if you actually look into any of his historical plays, he constantly just, like, mixes things up in terms of events and what actually might have happened and all this other stuff. But the fiction creates an interesting truth in its own right. And I think mm. this one does such a phenomenal job of doing that, where even if Frank Sheeran probably lied at his ass for that fucking movie, for that book that this is based on, it doesn't matter. Because it speaks to a more universal truth that we're all talking about, about just how if you live your life this way, you're going to end up getting completely screwed over all these actors are at their top of their game i wouldn't quite put it in the top five scorsese movies but at the same time that just speaks to his career that this phenomenal epic movie just isn't you know the absolute top tier it just speaks to how talented and versatile and amazing that dude is and it, with this movie i think it's such a great sort of punctuation mark on a career about the, the fascination with what brown was talking about especially that's all over scorsese's work about men who forge really interesting charismatic friendships in these dark circumstances end up completely tethering that apart and i think they do such a phenomenal job with that um and and i think uh it's also interesting just in terms of like being a scorsese nerd about certain things where like he's even sort of calling back to things that he did before like they play in the terms of the soundtrack they play uh looks uh pretend you don't see her as like an instrumental Mm. sad version which was a song that was belted out in goodfellas and by uh, the singer um, who's depicted in this movie, uh, Jerry Vale, who was in Goodfellas singing that song, is depicted as a character in this movie. And even ah. and even uh, Jim Norton pops up as Don Rickles, who was in Casino. Like, it's so, <laughs> it's so weird, like, even on that sort of, like, historical context of Louis Scorsese's career, or in terms of actual history, or in terms of just, like, the history of these actors, anything. There's so many different metacontextual layers that are there. But at the same time, even on its own, it's just a great epic crime movie. And probably the best example of, like, sort of the fall from grace that something like a Godfather 3 failed to do, this is, like, the absolute 180 of, like, this is how you actually do it. Mm-hmm. And do it pretty goddamn perfectly. But that is the end of our discussion <laughs> on our two movies. And uh, before we head out of here and we do our picking at the end of the episode, so stay tuned for that, we had some feedback to read because every Monday we ask you all about, hey, what are your favorite and least favorite things related to whatever topic we're doing? So we asked you all about favorite and least favorite um, movies uh, from 2019. So we're going to go ahead and read some of these here, um, and then we're going to talk about it a bit. Uh, so first, uh, from James Rodriguez, says, uh, Honeyland, a documentary about beekeeping, which compiles three years' worth of footage, is an engaging 90 minutes. The Farewell, a masterclass in humor and emotion that resonated with me. Avengers Endgame, a fantastic season finale to the Infinity Saga, packed with emotion and badass moments. Uh, for least favorite, I'll only mention the shit heap, which is The Queen's Corgi. What's the queen's corgi, you ask? The queen has a corgi who's entitled shit. Then Donald Trump appears and his dog sexually assaults the corgi. The corgi then ends up in a dog kennel where there's a dog addicted to cocaine, canine fight club, and a bit of casual classism. All for kids. Scott Johnson says, uh, Parasite, Us, The Farewell, The Lighthouse, and Booksmart are all in my top five um, as incredible films that I see uh, no real flaws in. However, Parasite has to be number one. I have to call it a masterpiece. The acting, direction, and brilliant script are all funny yet tragic in terms of its portrayal of class and wealth with beautifully detailed characters and bends genres so well that it sticks out in a very tough year. 
For worst, I would say Ugly Dolls, which is a stupid and insipid anime and movie from this year, which just as bad a concept in the songs as you would imagine. Um, Undercover Brother 2 is a cheap, lazy, flat-out regressive comedy that takes away the throwback to black exploitation from the first film and instead makes it a millennials or too sensitive film. And uh, finally, Love is Blind may be one of the most single, baffling, pretentious, cobbled-together movies I've ever seen, and it has the strangest, unbelievable depiction of like, stuff like illness, trauma, autism, and suicide. It was shelved for four years, and I hope no one has ever gets to watch it. It's this year's Collateral Beauty. Um, Scott Crawford says uh, Midsummer and uh, Lords of Chaos are my favorites of the year, and I haven't seen that many of that really bad ones, but I'll say Greta, just by process of elimination. Uh, Dan Chambos says, um, I really like Godzilla, King of the Monsters, Avengers Endgame, Ford vs. Ferrari, and Joker. Um, if I have to pick a bad one, it's only going to be My Guilty Pleasure, which was Terminator Dark Fate. I liked it, but I like the other four more than that one. Um, Michael Gordon said, favorite Avengers Endgame, Knives Out and the Farewell, least favorite Hellboy. Alex Autry says, uh, favorite Yesterday, least favorite Elite Battle Angel. Barrett Falstick says, uh, so I saw two movies, one after the other, that are my favorite and least favorite. Right after each other. Uh, favorite was Joker. Least favorite was Gemini Man. Um, and Larry Sternshine says best John Wick 3, worst 6 Underground. And um, I know, Brianna, you just put up a great article about your favorite movies of the year. But um, what were, you know, some of those that maybe you didn't mention on that list or just in general that you really loved from 2019? Yeah, 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 yeah. I have, um, some other ones that I really, really loved that were in my top 10 were The Beach Bum, High Life, Climax, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, The Death of Dick Long. I... I could keep going. I mean, I've got, I want to say in my 2019 ranked, which has almost 100 films, I think they start getting into like, I don't like this territory, not until like about 40. So that's like almost half. A lot. I loved a lot of really good movies this year. No, I, I mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, just to point out a few that weren't maybe mentioned on some of these lists. Um, I loved uh, Dole Mine Is My Name, the which mm. is such a great um comeback for eddie murphy i thought um or a really underrated one that no one's just talking about that i actually saw on a plane uh the art of self-defense oh yes jesse eisenberg such a great movie no one's so good i know for those who might be underwear the basic premise is jesse eisenberg plays a guy who's kind of meek and awkward and nobody likes him at work then he gets beat up um in a like back alley thing while he's like trying to go come back from the grocery store and he takes up karate um, and he finds out some really fucked up things about that karate school that I won't mention here, but especially the guy who plays his sensei is one of the most underrated performances of this year. He's so great. And I, I don't forgot the actor's name, but he's so phenomenal. That's such a great dark satire movie that more people need to see. Uh, what about you, Adam? Any of the, the limited ones you've seen? One of my favorites of the year, uh, because it was finally, I felt the character was done right, was the Spider-Man Far From Home. Uh which I know we love the Marvel movies, whatever. I don't care. It, to me, it was the the best Spider-Man movie. Like, like he felt like a teenager. It felt like the stakes were real uh, because he was trying to keep the girl and his friend and everything else. Uh, to me, that was a, that was a really, really well done uh, comic book movie, and uh, especially like I said, a Spider-Man movie. Um, as far as one of the worst for the year, I mean. Like I said, Pet Cemetery for for sure. I just it felt like one of those like, why were you making this? Mm-hmm. Uh, and to turn into what they did, I mean, what 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 are we doing here? It's a zombie family. Like this is just so stupid. 
I, I had in. very conflicting opinions on that one because I thought the first half was actually an interesting adaptation of the novel that felt a lot more true than the original movie. Sure, the and then they just fucked it they up. They fuck it up. No, they completely fuck it up at the halfway point. Yeah. I completely agree. And then uh, Three from Hell. Oh, so good. <laughs> what? Are you about to say it's bad? Are you about to say it's bad? What are you about to say? Oh, I fucking hated it. Ah! <laughs> Shut up! <laughs> Where Devil's Rejects is in my top ten favorite movies of all time. I just thought Three from Hell was a bastardization of the characters. I did not enjoy it. Well, I, uh, Brianna, that, that is a, um, not the most popular take. Why did you like Three from Hell out of curiosity? Because I haven't seen it yet, so I have no dog in this fight. it was cool as fuck! And I saw it in a double feature with Devil's Rejects uh, first. And it was, just, it was just fucking cool. Devil's Rejects. So cool, hadn't watched it in, like, so long, and the movie ended, and I was like, rips, this rips. And then Three from Hell, I don't know, it's not like, you know, they're not, it's not the it's most. Not what? No, <laughs> fuck off. <laughs> I don't know, I like those characters. I liked, I liked those characters. I obviously wish there was more Sid Haig, but, like, he was, you know, he was probably just old and, like, really tired and he was like i can't do a whole movie and then he died and i was really sad about that guys <laughs> i saw him two years ago at a convention oh, dang. yeah and he looked just he was so old and He's just looking rough yeah he looked rough it was really kind of heartbreaking well my thing is don't do the movie if you can't have that character there was no devil's rejects ended on a perfect note you didn't have to have the sequel so then when you try to do the sequel and you can't have Captain Spaulding, don't do the sequel. Uh, hey, Richard Brake. I love Richard Brake. He was great. Uh, he was a good replacement. Uh, well, well, okay, okay. To calm down, kids. We're going to turn the podcast around if you don't stop arguing with each other. Sure. Uh, <laughs> fair enough. This is debate. <laughs> one that um you actually really love that i don't think is getting a lot of attention either brianna um under the silver lake don't even which get is... me going boys <laughs> i i the spoilers you might really love that movie but i was really astonished with it in terms of just i only saw it recently and i'm just like man this is weirdly the an a24 distributed movie that's the biggest fuck you to the worst a24 fanboy possible and i completely respected for doing something that audacious and it's, it's also just, like, such a movie that's, like, not made for a lot of an audience. I'm surprised it ever got made. But yeah. the few, like, Van Diagram people, which involves, like, Brianna, me, and, like, about 15 other people, I think would really love it. <laughs> so it's, 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 I get why it's gotten divisive reviews, but it's, yeah. it's a phenomenal, unique little movie that I'm surprised exists. Um, and also just a couple others that, like, uh, I really loved Honey Boy, the Shia LaBeouf movie. Woo! I thought that one kind of got lost in the shuffle as well. I thought it's done a really good job. Woo! Also in terms of just, like, really efficient well-made movies to contrast, like, super long movies we've been talking about. Uh, Crawl from the summer is a great creature feature of a movie. And it's only, like, 89 minutes long. And I'm, like, it's such an efficient little horror movie that I think deserved a lot more credit. Um, And it also helps that I saw it in a Florida theater in the middle of a rainstorm. (laughs) And it was, like, the appropriate, like, cinematic experience with a bunch of Floridians. (laughs) It was, like... like, um, The 4D... You saw exactly. it in 4D, where you get the yeah. rain, the, the the shit on you or whatever, it makes you feel like you're there. You have that. It, yeah, it's 4DX basically. Yeah, literally. <laughs> it's all, I was basically just like people trying to steal the seat, and I move around a bit. Um, but but yeah, there's there's so many great movies, definitely 
to seek out for sure on that. Um, but uh, we want to thank, obviously, uh, you all for providing that feedback. And also thanks to Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used on our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. And thanks to Emily Scarter for the art for our show. And thanks, of course, to Brianna for coming on. Thank you so much. It was lovely having you on. Why don't you plug yourself, your Twitter, and all your writings and such? Woo! Thank you so much for having me. Um, you can follow me on Twitter, at Brianna Ziggs. Um, I write regularly for Screen Queens, Much Ado About Cinema, and Film School Rejects, and I have other stuff elsewhere. I'm sure if you Google my name, you will find it. Thanks. Yeah, I, I want to give you a shout out for, I loved your piece you did on um, Over the Garden Wall. Thank you. And that's a thing that needs to be seen by more people, too. I yes. love that little miniseries. So mm-hmm. great. Um, and you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBpod. And uh, you can also email us feedback at uh, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. I also do uh, some, uh, you know, my own thoughts on my Twitter account at not the who's Tommy. Um, and I do writing at marianitomas.wordpress.com, where I do like my reviews and such. I also write satirical superhero news at truesuperherofans.com. And uh, Adam, you have ghoulish gourds, right? I do, I do, and I just want to throw it out there. I'm a little bit behind right now because I had what the doctors call the laryngitis and uh, the flu and a bunch of other things, so I was kind of laid up. No time for arting, but uh, I'm back in the game, baby. By the time you hear this, I've been pumping them out. Uh, so again, facebook.com slash ghoulishgourds. Uh, hit me up if you want something. I'll hook you up, hook you up real cheap if you mention that you heard it on this show. Yes, and uh, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. Um, If you're listening on ESO, why not dig into the archives on our regular Podbean feed? And uh, you can rate, review, or just share the show around. That helps us get more visibility out there. But now it's the end of the show, and so we have to do our picking for next week. And uh, we talked about best of this particular year, Adam, but the end of 2019 means also the end of an entire decade. And uh, we're going to do something a bit audacious. We've never done, we've like revisited topics before, but we've never done a thing where we do a two-parter specifically, one after the other. And so uh, we're doing that because, uh, you know, with the end of a decade, we definitely have to take two episodes to talk about it because that gives us each a chance to talk about a good and a bad movie uh, for, you know, from this entire decade. And so for this upcoming one, the first part of two, um, I have uh, the good picks, you have the bad picks. And you've assigned your two movies a number between 1 and 10, and I've done the same myself. And usually we would pick number between 1 and 10 for each other's choices, and that gets us our good and bad feature. But when we have a guest like the lovely Brianna over here, uh, we call them up and say, I heard you pick numbers. And then she picks the numbers. So uh, for each of us, uh, for first for uh, my two good picks, number between 1 and 10. Um, let's do 4. All right. At number 3. I have a movie from 2013, um, I think one that was oddly very prescient of the future that would come in just the six years since. It is Spike Jones's Her. So funny. that I I have not watched that movie yet. Oh, okay. So that'll so be fun. Will... That'll be fun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Another first time that'll watch. Very... Yes. So then at number seven, I had um, uh, one that I think also got kind of lost in the shuffle, but because it's a foreign horror film. Uh, from South Korea, Train to Busan, which oh, is my favorite oh, South Korean movie. Fucking movie. God, what a good movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's so movie. good. Yes, great film. But now for Adam's two choices, number between one and ten, Brianna. Eight. At number nine, I had 
I want to say from 2017. I don't know because I didn't pay attention to it because it's garbage. Max Steele. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. Oh, my. Kabuki. Everyone's completely forgotten about him. I, barely, I think it's like a robot kid or something. Yeah, something like that. I don't know. It's based off an old toy, I think. At number one, I had the fanatic. Oh. Oh. <laughs> the, oh. From our famous auteur, Fred Durst. Yeah. But, no, we're going Max Steel, baby. Uh, but... On that note, everybody, um, it's time to crawl into our horrible, miserable end of our lives and sit down and tell ostensibly nobody about our entire history that might be fake. Let's go and do that. Okay. Good night, everybody. has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the Public store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.